Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. It's been an interesting arc for us, these first parshiot of Book of Reshit of Genesis. Uh, so kind of continuing in that vein, um, we're going to go through um, the text this morning. And um, as per what, what we've been doing recently, we're going to dig into one line of commentary uh, and spend most of our time there. So we're going to be brief about the bigger story, I'm sorry to say. Um, and uh, and then we're going to dig into some commentary that I feel like um, really spoke to me this this week. Let's go to the text. We are in Parshat by Yishlach. Um, I'm going to bring us to the end of the Parsha right before by Yishlach. By Yishlach starts at 32. We're going to be at 31, the end of 31, 3151. So we're at the end of the, of the story of Yaakov living with his cousin, uh, with his uh, relative Lavan. So Yaakov is leaving the house of Lavan. He's taking with him his family. So his two wives, his two wives, they're two handmaidens, uh, and they are taking, he's taking his 13 children and uh, all of his wealth that he has acquired in Haran. And they are going back to Kna'an. They are, he's going back to, uh, Avraham's Place. Why did Jacob leave? Why is he with Lavan? He was afraid. He was afraid of his brother. His brother, because his brother was a violent person, and he stole his forage and his birthright. All right. <laughs> so his brother, he stole the birthright from his brother um, twice. Right, tricked him kind of twice out of the birthright, um, and um, Aesop wants revenge, as Alex pointed out, um, and he. You know, he's a hunter. He knows how to wield things. So, um, so Yaakov, so Rebecca overhears that Aesop intends to kill Yaakov. And so she tells him to flee and to go to her family, um, to go to Lavan. Lavan tricks Jacob into marrying Leah when he wanted to marry Rachel. And, um, so he worked 14 years for, uh, for Rachel. Um, and winds up with, um, two wives. Um, each of them, when they're not bearing, give him their handmaids. Hence the handmaid's tale comes from this, comes from them giving Jacob their handmaids so that they, so that, um, they would conceive the, the wives would conceive children through their handmaids because they, because they own the handmaids, they own the offspring of the handmaids. They can adopt those offspring as their own. Um, so, so that's what's, so that's what's been going on since we last hung out with this family. Yes. So is Levon, I mean, it means white. Is that, is that just what's the L or there's no connection? It's like Smith. Like did it one, did it once, did it once upon a time have a mean, you know, yeah. but what, and, and, and like, you you could we we always play with that we always make it mean something right but um but but the fact that Levan is such a yucky guy and has the name White like there's just not a lot to do with that like you know if it had been if his name meant Camel 
or something like, I don't know, you might get to do something, right? Or ass, you know, but white, as as far as I know, there's no commentary on on that. What about the dream? So the dream, uh, the dream, which was the latter dream? Yeah, the latter dream. So that's not the, that's not this. Okay. All right. So let's, so, so now he's going, so, uh, Yaakov is going back, uh, to, uh, Kna'an. When, when he left, Rebecca said, go. And when your brother calms down, I'll send for you. It's been a really long time. It's been 20 years. <laughs> right. So why didn't Rebecca send for him? Does it mean Asaph never calmed down? We don't know. Right. But Rebecca dies. Right. And so Yaakov never sees his mother again. So, um, so, so he never gets word that it's okay. He never gets word that it's safe and he goes. Um, so he's heading back anyway. So he's, he's in a state of not knowing. He's in a state of, um, of he's got to be in some fear. Um, and then he learns that, uh, Asav is coming with 400 men to meet him. So, but we're, we're just going to pick up right here because I want to pick up on one line of the end of this Parsha. All right. So 51, verse 51. So this is after uh, an incident between Lavan and Yaakov, but they've worked it out and Lavan's going to let him go in peace. So Vayomer uh, Lavan Yaakov. And so Lavan says to Yaakov, Hine hagal hazeh behine hamatseva asher yariti beini uveincha. Sorry. So um, here is this mound. Here is this pillar that I have sunk between me and you. Witness is this mound. Witness is the pillar that I will not cross over this mound to you and you will not cross over this mound and this pillar to me for ill. Right. So this is a, a pact. This is a treaty that they're making that neither one will come past this border to to do something bad to the other one. Okay. So they 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 construct a a symbol of a boundary, yeah, or or whatever, or they pick one. I don't know, but a matseva is always something you put up. A matseva you erect, a stone, right? Well, that right. So a, a gravestone is a kind of matseva. right? No, there's a mound and there's a matseva. So um, I don't know if the mound is made or if it's already there. Um, okay. So they they make this treaty. So may the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor keep justice between us, the God of their father. Now I want you to. This is what I why I picked this first and why I want you to look at it. Vayishava Yaakov b'fachad aviv Yitzchak. So Yaakov swears. So Yaakov's going to keep his end of the agreement. What does he swear by? What does he use to swear? The what? Fear. The fear of his father. What does that mean? (laughs) Right? So my translation says the terror of his father Yitzchak. Right? So what is, what is that about? 
What, just, just guess. There's no wrong answers. Just guess. Huh? It's a powerful thing. It's called theory, but down generations. Okay. So why is why is it so powerful? Why why is that what's associated with Yitzchak? Because of the Akedah. So, what was Avraham associated with by the rabbis? We remember we did that whole text. We walked through that whole Svadimet text. What was Avraham associated with? Sacrifice. Love. Yes, said love. Remember, and then we talked about maybe the Akedah, the Svadimet suggested, so that he would learn to relate to God out of pachad, out of yirah, out of awe and fear, right? So Abraham is associated with chesed, with love, and it's very clear as early as the biblical text. Forget chassidism, forget the rabbis. As early as the rabbinic text, pachad, yirah, is associated with Yitzchak. He's defined by fear. Okay? Right. So then Yaakov slew the sacrificial meal on the mountain. That's what you do when you're making a covenant. You're cutting any kind of a deal. The way you seal the deal is that you have a power lunch. Right? So you sacrifice an animal and you have lunch. So you're dining with God. So that God becomes a witness to this deal and and will be brought to bear on either part. God will be, you know, brought into whoever abrogates the deal, right? Okay. So and they ate and they spent the night on the mountain. That's that's very normal biblical behavior. All right. So by Eshkem Lavan Baboker, so Lavan gets up in the morning, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them, and Lavan went and returned to his place. Okay. So Yaakov went on his way. And messengers of God encountered him. Yaakov said when he saw them, this is a camp of God. And he called the name of that place, um, Machanaim, um, which is a plural of camp. Okay. Whatever. So that's how this place got his name. Okay. Whatever. So let's go on. So we're in chapter 32, verse 4. Vayishlach, Vayishlach, what does he, what does he send? Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim, Lefanav, El Esav Achiv, Artsa, Seir, Sede Edom. So he sends messengers ahead of himself, Malachim. So I'm not making it up when I tell y'all Malachim does not mean angel, it means messenger, right? He's not sending angels. Malachim, it's the same, he's sending messengers. So he's saying, sending messengers ahead of himself to Esav, his brother, Towards the land of Seir, which is where Esav lives, in the territory of Edom, right? So remember, we talked about um, Esav is is Edom, and remember he comes out Admoni, red. Okay, so Adom is red. So the land of Edom, Adom, right? Okay. By Etzavotamlimor, and he charges them. He charges the the uh, the what the Malachim, saying, when you get to Esav. I want you to say, thus says your servant Yaakov, I have been with Lavan and have tarried there till now. I've gotten a lot of good stuff, a lot of, I'm, I'm really wealthy, um, right? And I've sent, I've been, so I have sent to tell my Lord to find favor in your eyes. This is what they're supposed to say to Esau, right? The messengers returned to Yaakov saying, we came to your brother Esau. He's already coming to meet you with 400 men. <laughs> okay. So what is, what does Yaakov assume? Nothing good. 
says Lisa, right? Nothing good. Your brother's coming with 400 men. Now, generally, if you're just going to say hi and help somebody across the border, you don't generally take a welcoming committee of 400 men. So he's assuming, right, this could be super bad. So Yaakov, here we go. This is the verse we're going to dig into. And as always, you're going to go, why? So, and Yaakov became exceedingly afraid and was distressed. He divided the people that were with him and the sheep and the oxen and the camels into two camps. He said to himself, should Asaph come against one camp and strike it, the camp that is left will be a remnant that escapes. Then Yaakov said, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Yitzchak, O yud who said to me, return to your land, to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. Um, too small am I for all the loyalty and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with my rod did I cross this Jordan, meaning only with my rod I had nothing. And now I have become two camps. Pray save me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am in fear of him, lest he come and strike me down, mothers and children alike. But you, you have said, I will deal well with you. I will make your seed like the sand of the sea, what? which is too much to count. He, he spent the night there that night and took a gift from what was at hand for Esau, his brother. So he takes a bunch of stuff. And he hands him over to his servants, herd by herd, and says, go ahead of me and leave leave space between each of these herds so that each group's going to get to Asav and say, this is from your brother, your servant, Jacob, right? This is going to happen over and over and over to Asav as he comes. He's going to get another and another and another herd, right? I'm coming to, you know, I'm come to you in peace, right? Uh, Right. Okay. Um, and so he says all this stuff that they're supposed to say to him. Right. Um, see, he rose during that night and took his two wives, his two maids and his 11 children to cross the what? Mm-mm-mm. The Yabok. What's his name? Yaakov. Yaakov. You cannot miss that in Hebrew. Right. So here here's the word where my cursor is in Hebrew. Yud bet kuf. Remember, the b and the v are the same letter without the dagesh. It's the same letter. So Yaakov and Yabuk, it's the same letter, the b and the v. So this Yud bet kuf, that's his name, right? Just switch the kuf and the bet and add an ayin. So the, you cannot miss this in the Hebrew. He's going to cry. He, he takes them over and he goes back over the Yabuk. Yaakov goes over the Yabuk and stays by himself. Okay. He was left alone. So he gets everybody to safety. He has no idea what's about to happen. He's done everything he can to propitiate Aesop and prepare it. He's split his camp in case, God forbid, one of them gets hit. He can have the, help the other one get away. And he goes over the Yabuk alone. So by Yaakov Levado. So he's Levado, he's Levat, he's alone. You cannot miss this in Hebrew. Look at verse 25. So we've got the Yabuk. Now we've got Ve'yavik Ish Imo. Ve'yavik Yaakov. You cannot miss that in the Hebrew. Um, so 
what does that mean? So, so an ish, a, a someone takes hold of him, grabs him, right? And, and struggles with him, wrestles with him. Ad alot shachar until the sun is coming up. Vayar kilo yacholo. This Hebrew is your it, translations are close, but it doesn't do the Hebrew justice. So vayar kilo yacholo, and he sees that he's not able to him. Okay. Ah, so here we go. Vayigab bechaf yerecho. So he injures him in. The socket of his thigh. Sorry, Dana. Close your ears. Vateka kaf yerech Yaakov. And he wrenches the thigh thing of Yaakov. Avko imo. In his wrestling with him. So he dislocates or does something yeah, terrible to Yaakov's um, hip. To that joint. Again, sorry, Dana. Um then he said, let me go, for dawn has come up. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Yaakov. So until that moment, we don't know which he is who on purpose, right? We've talked about this a lot. It's not because they didn't know how to edit texts. Right. It's all jumbled and messy and confusing because this is not a normal event. This is not a normal occurrence. Something's going on here. So it's all tangled. You, so once you get to Yaakov, you have to go back and read he, 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 to till you get to, right? What's going on? So what's going on is they are wrestling. He saw that he could not prevail against him. Only because we have to read backwards. If you read it backwards, now you know the Ish could not prevail against Jacob. So the Ish wrenches Jacob's hip socket. Okay? You say Ish. And then he said, the Ish says, let me go. And for dawn has come up. The sun is rising. So let me go. And Yaakov says, I will not let you go. Unless you bless me. And the Ish says, what is your name? And he says, Yaakov. Then he said, meaning the Ish, not as Yaakov shall your name be henceforth, but rather Yisrael. For you have wrestled with God and men and have prevailed. The Ish is. Correct. Then Yaakov asked and said, pray tell me your name. But he said, why now do you ask about my name? Which is not not what the Hebrew says. What is this that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Yaakov called the name of the place Pniel, the face of God. Kiraiti Elohim Panim El Panim. For I saw God face to face and my life has been spared. The sun rose on him as he crossed by Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, the descendants of Israel do not eat the nerve that goes here through the, you know, the glutes 
um, that is on the socket of the thigh until this day. For he had touched the socket of Yako's thigh at the, at the, um, not, it says sinew, but what do we call it? No, the ligament, right? So this ligament right here. So, so we don't eat that part of the animal because Jacob got hurt there. Um, and so we don't eat that. Okay. So that's a whole nother thing about like why we don't eat the hind part, which we still don't, by the way, it's not kosher. Um, we believe possibly it's because of the, um, the nerve. What's it called? The, the sciatic nerve that goes through there. I don't know that. Possibly yeah. in, in ancient times, they thought it was part of the reproductive system. And so it's like taboo to eat it. Is that a beef or chicken or anything? So it's on animals. So, um, so we're not allowed to eat it. All right. So the, possibly that's what it comes from is they thought it was part of the reproductive system. We don't know. Um, but you can't eat it. So, um, so he comes out. There's no dark meat on a cow. There's no dark meat on a cow. You can eat, you can eat animals with wings. Dark meat, but you're saying grout like gravity bearing. Oh my God. Okay. So unbelievable. The things they cannot prepare you for in rabbinical school. Okay. Um, so, so he walks away limping. So back to Linda's question. We don't know who the ish is. Who does Yaakov say the Ish is? God. So in some form or fashion, Yaakov understands that he has been wrestling with God. Why does the thing say, let me go for the morning has come? Hmm? So what is that? What does the sun rising have to do with anything? It could be a dream. Yeah. He's wrestling with himself in a dream. Or... So if it's a dream, what is that? Why does the being say morning's coming? Let me go. You can just wake up. Time to move ahead. Well, you start a new day. Yeah. Y'all are not being nearly creative. Think outside the box. What might the origin of this story be? If the thing says, let me go, the sun is rising. Correct. Correct. It's a demon. It is some kind of a being that cannot exist in the daylight. It It can only be in the dark. Who's heard of three billy goats gruff? That's the three Billy Goats gruff is a genre of stories that comes from bodies of water having demons there or some kind of night, you know, being that watches over it and you have to get its permission to cross. So he's put everybody over on that side. He's gone back over the Yavuk. It is very possible Yaakov is wrestling with the demon of the Yavuk. So very early on, there's there's reason to believe this is something about Yaakov wrestling with the dark side of Yaakov. Right. Right. So that there's there's something right. So but it, it possibly comes from that genre of stories that the river has its guardian. And that's where it originates. If that's what he's wrestling with. That's why. Let me go for the morning is coming. I got to get out of here. And Yaakov says, uh-uh, like Yaakov realizes what's happening, right? You know, so he hangs on and, and says, not till you give me a little bit of your power, right? Give me your blessing, meaning, like, right, give me some of your stuff. I can't <laughs> no, no. This. It, it's got to be a Jew-ish. 
Huh? Not to be a Jewish. Just making a part of it. On what? Oh, an Eve. Got okay. What compels him to go back? Do we know what compels him? What? What compels him to go back alone? So there are some that want to suggest that it was for this purpose. It was to like what your thing about the ladder that he is he's dream incubating. That because you remember on the ladder he puts his head on a rock. Even in the ancient world, they weren't dumb. You don't sleep on a rock. Right. Like so that he put his head on a rock. Some people want to say that that's a dream incubation. So he he's so tired he's going to sleep, but he's not going to sleep completely because his head's on a rock. So it puts him in kind of a sleep state, a sleep state so he can have an experience. Um, and there's some who want to suggest he goes back alone in order to. To do has has a good man. Yes. So that kind of evil for Right. So so what what does the author suggest the ish is about? Certainly we know Yaakov perceives it as I have seen God face to face. What does the author seem to suggest by saying um right that you your name's not gonna be Yaakov anymore, but it will now be Yisrael. That he'll have the power to lead the. So, I mean, it's it's clear that the that the author is also suggesting this is something about Yaakov having wrestled with something that is not human, that is right, that is that is of the divine, and he has hung on, and we call ourselves Bnei Yisrael, not Bnei Yaakov, not Bnei Avraham, not Bnei Yitzchak. We call ourselves B'nai Yisrael. I don't think it's an accident that this is the story of that name, right? Like we've, that's been passed on. The, the people who called themselves B'nai Yisrael wrote this story. And we continue to wrestle. So that's, I mean, so for, for the people who called themselves B'nai Yisrael, who called themselves Yisrael, this is their story, right? Okay. So um, it's not the other way around. We often think, oh, that's why we're called Israel. No. The people who understood themselves as Israel wrote this as their founding, one of their founding narratives about how they got that name. Right? Mm-hmm. So I always ask my bar about mitzvah kids, is that a little odd? Like, it's not the, it's not the righteous ones who follow God. The righteous who serve God. That is not how our people explain who we are. Our people explain who we are as those who wrestle God, who struggle with God. In the complexities of humans and their darkness. Uh-huh. Um, but not that God is dark. Well, that we're yeah. all, we all have light and dark. Yeah. And yeah. Variations, iterations. And there it is, right? So, and... And there it is, right? So, so that, so that is, that's kind of, that, that's it. That's the end of our, like, our, our text that, that we're gonna, um, do. So I wanna do what we wanna do with that. And then we're gonna go back to the verse about he was afraid and distressed. Um, so, so this is, this is how our people understands our name. This is how we understand who we are. Those who wrestle El. Okay. El, if you'll recall, was the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon. Most of your early Israelites, I'll say it for the millionth time, most of your early Israelites were converted Canaanites. El is a very important name for them. 
So for early Israel, El is a primary name. Yes, they were Yahwists. Yes, Yudhei pushes in and becomes the dominant god, right? Um, but El is really the way you hang on to your converted Canaanites, right? So it's very important, this name, El. So it's not Yisra Yudhei That's not the name that, of, of this new people in this region, right? It's a new people. This new people is Yisra L, right? So you've got a bunch of folks who have been attached to that pre, you know, to that history of L and L's presence and L's rituals and all of the things associated with that pantheon. You, you got to bring them in and, and the Yudhei Vavhei Yahwist folks, they, they also relate. They take that name of L on for their God as well, right? So, but Yisrael, the ones who wrestle L, who struggle with L becomes our defining is it um, wrestle or or questioning or they're synonymous? Those who question, those who struggle with all that. <laughs> struggle. So right, I think I think all of that is implied. I think all of it's there, like because it's so, just like because it certainly doesn't mean physical wrestling that Jacob did. Right, that's obviously not what it means. It's obviously even for them metaphorical. So what is the wrestling? If we're not fighting with something at the edge of a river, like what does it mean? And I think even in the biblical imagination, that was a pretty wide set of understandings about what that means. But Hannah? If L is the, the object or the subject part of that thing, does, the, does that verb part, do we know anything about the like etymology of the extra part? Yes. So there are some who want to link it to to wrestle, to struggle. Um, Isar. There are some who want to um, tie it instead to um, uh, like an officer, you know, like um, an officer of God. How about identity? Say more. Ah, so Sarah's suggesting... It's a struggle for the identity of the people, Israel. Well, if Jacob's going into himself, then that reading really makes a lot of sense. Say if, more. If, if, if you said before that you have Jacob and Yabok, and that in a way he's not, he's not necessarily going into a river, but he's going deep into himself. And this, it's an internal struggle. So that I think reinforces Sarah's interpretation. Beautiful. He also had a lot of struggling in his grandfather's struggle. Okay. Okay. So this is where we're going to go. This is the reason it spoke to me, this, this, this set of commentaries. And I've just, remember I told y'all when I was going to leave the triennial that I was just going to trust that stuff would show up and that I would know what to do. Um, and each time I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I can't teach that this week. I can't teach that this week. I can't know. And then somehow, some, I don't know how it happens, but a verse that I kind of like, huh, that's an interesting comment. And there it is again in something else I'm reading. I'm like, that for me is like, okay, then I guess that's, that's where we're going. So, so where it landed for me was I want to hold on to this idea of Avraham. As Chesed, Zornberg suggests Avraham is Chesed. That is thesis. Yitzchak is Yirah, fear, which is antithesis. What is Yaakov then? Thesis, 
antithesis, and then what? Synthesis. Yaakov is synthesis. How do you get synthesis? You have to have thesis and you have to have antithesis struggling. They have to confront, those have to confront each other out of the, out of that confrontation between thesis and antithesis comes synthesis. So in that argument, Yaakov has to struggle. He has to wrestle with both the Abraham in him and the Yitzhak in him. He has got to struggle with the approach that is all love and intimacy and relationship, because look what that led to. What did Abraham's love and adoration and intimacy with God lead to? The Akedah, the willingness to sacrifice his son. So what does that communicate to Yaakov? Right? There is a very serious danger in coming just out of love and intimacy and, and wanting to be in relationship, a close relationship, because that led to the Akedah. But he also internalizes the life of his father, which was a life of terror, a life defined by fear and terror. He has to figure out the path that is between those. And he's not been successful. Yeah, that's real. And now, <laughs> Alex, thank you. So why did that speak to me right, so much? Because I feel like that's where we are. That is exactly where we are. We are struggling with the history, both of love for this land and love of the language and love of our culture and love of our people, you know, coming out of love. And we are struggling in this moment with what is a defining, you know, epoch for us of fear. Starting with the Shoah, maybe even back to the Inquisition and all the ways in diaspora we've been terrorized. And certainly we're living through that moment now. And as hostilities resume, can we find a path between those? If we only come out of the one, that leads to scary things, which I believe is a destruction of the second temple. If you come only out of the second, only out of fear, that can create horrible things too. And, and if we, and if we, if we have got to find the path between those two. So I want to look at what our commentary and our commentary actually, which I cannot, it continues to amaze me. I don't know why it should shock me. Our, our tradition goes there. And I hear, and I do, you just have to always appreciate this about Torah. You read this first and you go, okay, he was afraid and distressed. Move on. To the good stuff, right? So much commentary on this one verse. It just, it never ceases to amaze me. All right. He was afraid, vayetzer, and distressed. He divided the people into two camps. Okay, that should be the end of it. Go on to the interesting part. No, not our tradition. Rashi says, because you can't have department of redundancy department in Torah. Torah can't be redundant. So for the, if this is revelation and God's revelation, God doesn't waste words. So why would, why would you have to add Vayetzer and he was distressed? You've already said he was afraid. Okay. That is so he, so why do you have to add distressed? So Rashi has to explain that. You have to explain why God would add that word. Okay. So Rashi says, 
He feared greatly and was distressed. He was afraid lest he be killed. He was distressed that he might have to kill. Yeah. Okay. Right? 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 Okay. Radak also. A later commentary than Rashi says the reason why the Torah repeated the emotions Yaakov experienced twice, but in different words, was to underline how strongly he felt this fear. In Breshit Rabbah, these two expressions are described as basically meaning the same thing. So why do you need it twice, Radak says. So if there's an emphasis, what, what is the emphasis about? The only difference being that the former is intransitive, Yaakov being afraid of being killed, Whereas the latter describes a similar fear, but that of having to kill one's adversary. One might argue that Jacob should surely not be distressed about the possibility of killing Esav, for there is an explicit rule. If someone comes to kill you, forestall it by killing him. You are allowed to kill. That's why I don't like it when they translate the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. That's wrong. That is a mistranslation. That's wrong. You are allowed to kill. You are not allowed to murder. But if someone's coming to kill your kids, if someone comes in here to hurt anybody, guess what? Like we, we are obligated to protect ourselves. And so, so what's the fear about killing the adversary? We know according to Jewish law, you're allowed to kill someone who's coming to kill you. Nonetheless, Jacob did have qualms, fearing that in the course of the fight, he might kill some of Esau's men who were not themselves intent on killing him, but merely on fighting, on the fighting, right? And even though Aesop's men were pursuing Jacob's men, and every person has the right to save the life of the pursued at the cost of the life of the pursuer, nonetheless, there is a condition. If the pursued could have saved by maiming a limb of the pursuer, but instead the rescuer killed the pursuer, the rescuer is liable to capital punishment on that account. Hence, Jacob feared that in the confusion of battle, he might kill some of Esau's men when he might have restrained them by merely inflicting injury on them. You see where our commentary is already going with this? It's already discussing the morals and ethics of warfare. It's discussing the fact that Yaakov is not only worried about being killed, he's distressed at the thought of killing somebody else, even somebody who's coming for him. But what what is he concerned about in this interpretation? Killing unnecessarily. That he might could just injure them, stop them from coming after him without killing them. Collateral damage. And also, isn't it, or could it possibly be the notion of killing your own brother, even though his brother's coming for him? For sure. And and that that goes, uh, Sachs does goes there. I, I took a lot of this from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs um, in his piece, Physical Fear, Moral Distress, and he says that, you know, especially it's his brother. But I chopped that out because for my purposes, that didn't work. Um, so... <laughs> All right. So there is, however, says Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, a second possible explanation for Jacob's fear, namely that the Midrash means what it says. No more, no less. Jacob was distressed at the possibility of being forced to kill, even if entirely justified. What we are encountering here, what we are encountering here, says Sachs, is the concept of a moral dilemma. 
This phrase is often used imprecisely to mean a moral problem, a difficult ethical decision, but a dilemma is not simply a conflict. There are many moral conflicts. And he goes on to say, and I chopped it out. He goes on to say, like, because there's clearly a right and a wrong. So there might be a conflict, but you choose the right over the wrong. He said, but sometimes the dilemma is when there is no right answer. It arises in cases of conflict between right and right, between wrong and wrong, where whatever we do, we are doing something that in other circumstances we ought not to do. If you don't want to, if you don't think this applies to this morning, I don't know what to tell you. Moral dilemmas are situations in which doing the right thing is not the end of the matter. The conflict may be inherently tragic. Jacob in this Parsha finds himself trapped in such a conflict. On the one hand, he ought not allow himself to be killed. On the other, he ought not kill someone else, but he must do one or the other. The fact that one principle, self-defense, overrides another, the prohibition against killing, does not mean that faced with such a choice, he is without qualms. Sometimes being moral means that one experiences distress at having to make such a choice. Doing the right thing may mean that one does not feel remorse or guilt, but one still feels regret or grief about the action that needs to be taken. A moral system which leaves room for the existence of dilemmas is one that does not attempt to eliminate the complexities of a moral life. In a conflict between two rights or two wrongs, there may be a proper way to act, the lesser of two evils or the greater of two goods, but this does not cancel out all emotional pain. A righteous individual may sometimes be one who is capable of distress, even while knowing that they have acted correctly. What the Midrash is telling us is that Judaism recognizes the existence of dilemmas. Despite the intricacy of Jewish law and its meta-halachic principles of deciding which of two duties takes priority, we may still be faced with situations this morning in which there is an ineliminable cause for distress. It was Jacob's greatness that he was capable of moral anxiety, even at the prospect of doing something entirely justified, namely defending his life at the cost of his brothers. All right. Right. Yeah. Like, I just feel like the other thing, you know, we, we, we talk about Torah having something to say to us all the time. And it really did. It jumped off the pages this this week yeah. as I was preparing to say, are we brave enough to start owning the complexities of this moment yeah. and to start articulating our own grief at what we are having to perpetrate? Until now, we've not because we've been caught up in our in our pain and we've been caught up in our fear and, and justifiably so. But if we're really going to talk synthesis, if we're really going to talk synthesis, we've got to come out of Pachat. We have to come out of here uh, at some point and start holding what our tradition has always held, the the need to own the pain of doing even that which we know we have to do. But can we, st- I am asking this truly, can we as a community start to trust our ability to hold both of those and to articulate both of those? The complexity is painful. The complexity is deeply painful. And I don't think what I'm what I'm strengthened by in this is the ability to speak 
to doing that which we know has to be done and doing it with serious, serious pain and regret that it has to be done. And can we do it in a way that is the lesser of the bad and the greater of the good? And that is the moment the IDF is facing. That is the moment. And so I want to bring you this quote from Yitzhak Rabin, may his heroic memory be for a blessing. This is shortly after the Six-Day War. He was interviewed, and he was chief of staff during the Six-Day War. And he says, we find more and more, so this is right, this is how they're processing everything that happened, right? It's later that year. We find more and more a strange phenomenon among our fighters. Their joy is incomplete, meaning it was miraculous that Israel won that war. Completely miraculous. Their joy is incomplete. And more than a small portion of sorrow and shock prevails in their festivities. And there are those who abstain from celebration. The warriors on the front lines saw with their own eyes, not only the glory of victory, but the price of victory. They are comrades who fell beside the bleeding. And I know that even the terrible price, which our enemies paid, touched the hearts of many of our men. Now, of course, it would be men and women. It may be that the Jewish people has never learned or accustomed itself to feel the triumph of conquest and victory. And therefore, we receive it. With mixed feelings. Lisa? Because we're told not to rejoice at the death of Egyptians as they're being Now remember, that's Midrash, right? That's Midrash. But that sentiment is there. But you read it right into Torah because that's how prevailing it is from the rabbis, right? That we shouldn't read the Torah text and rejoice, right? Because the Torah doesn't say anything about it, they sing and dance. We won. And the women dancing with their timbrels. Right? The Midrash says, "Uh uh-uh, not so fast. We do not rejoice over the death of the enemy. That became Jewish culture. Biblical Israel might have celebrated if they didn't get carried off as slaves. Who could blame them? But Judaism, Jewish tradition says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh. How do we get this idea out from the idea in the news? Well, I think for it, I think it has to start with us being willing to have the conversation internally. Until now, there's not been room to talk about our own feelings about what's happening to innocent Palestinians. There's not been room. Been too concentrated on that, revenge. Right. I'm I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing to call it revenge. I'm not. That I won't do. Be- because why not? Because the IDF does not understand it as revenge. The IDF understands that they have to root out Hamas. Right. That it was a mistake to think Israel could live in peace next to Hamas. Yeah. That it was a miscalculation. Yeah. That they made a mistake. Yeah. And now they're going to fix it. And they're going to take out Hamas. It is not revenge. If it were revenge, they would just carpet bomb Gaza and not make corridors for people to get out and not bring food and medicine, which you don't hear in the news, into the hospital, you know, into Shifra. They brought food and medicine into Shifra. And they brought incubators. And incubators and people to run them. You know, so it's like you never hear any of that, of course. So it's not. But but even if you have to root out Hamas, 
what what's going to happen our innocents are going to be killed and and I, i'm hoping we get to a place and to a point where we can have that conversation about the pain of that not about right or wrong but cuz it may be it's wrong wrong <laughs> Right, right, which is what sex is so brilliantly bringing forward. But is there room for us to hold our deep sadness and our, and our, and our acute pain that, that that's the world we're living in, right? That, that that's the reality that, that we're living in. And Daphne is saying when peace comes, we will perhaps in time be able to forgive the Arabs for killing our children, but it will be harder for us to forgive them for having forced us to kill theirs. Oh, that she's quoting Golda Meir. Yeah. When peace comes, we will perhaps in time be able to forgive the Arabs for killing our sons, but it will be harder for us to forgive them for having forced us to kill their sons. Yeah. This is this is the crux of what I think Sachs is is reading into our uh, into our parsha. I want to um, close with, um, uh, yeah, right. It's a lot, and and we could stop there. I know, but I do want to I do want to get to this Zornberg piece because I think it's such a perfect way to end. She says, "This is Jacob's dilemma." At the core, what cripples him, remember, he walks off limping. We don't know that he ever recovers. There are some who say he walks with a limp the rest of his life. Um, Dana and I can relate. Um, and, right, at the core, what cripples him, and, and Judith can too, is his sense of his father's crippling. I think this is also really important for us. What cripples Isaac, what cripples Yaakov is his father's crippling. Isaac, in the branding moment of his life, was bound hand and foot. And Jacob, in spite of all his movements of hand and feet, in spite of the freedom and energy he expresses in love and work during the years away from his father's house, remains profoundly absorbed by his father's trauma. Right? I think this is us as a Jewish people. Yisrael, it's us. It's not just Jacob. We are crippled by our ancestors generations of Jews cripplings. So then I gave you the thesis, antithesis, all that stuff. The nodal experience is, Ramban asserts, the Akedah day, the existential dread that he lived on that day, uh, that he lived that day, what, he was bound in sacrifice to God. As Jacob begins his journey down to Egypt, he has agonized premonitions of the exile and slavery of his children. She's now talking about the end of the Jacob story, the end of the Joseph story, when he goes down to Egypt to live. She says that's where he finally, he finally brings it all together, is when he goes to live with Joseph. Um, he has a vision at the end of his life of the exile and slavery of his children. He offers sacrifices. Uh, the Shlamim sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac, who was known in dread and blind anguish. He engages fully with that dread and prays that it may be moderated in him, that he may find a new vital equilibrium. Jacob is the first person to offer such peace offerings in the Torah. He's the first to offer a Shlamim, a peace, a wholeness offering, expressing his longing for peace, for wholeness. But in order to realize that desire, he must begin with the difficult, the overwhelming experience of his immediate precursor, his father. He must, in Bloom's terms, compound with Isaac's reality, meaning really face that it was his father's trauma that he's carrying around, right? We, the Jewish generation of today, still act out of so much past trauma. We had this conversation a few weeks ago, right? Um, only then 
Can he seek to balance the fear, the sense of mystery and complexity in which the human is dwarfed with the opposing sense of chesed, of love, connection, spontaneous expansion and encounter with all that exists, which is, of course, his grandfather. This search for equilibrium, for a sense of his own quickening power, that's Bloom's stuff, Ramban calls the search for truth. It is consummated through sacrifice, through peace offerings, which generate a new revelation of God in a vision by night, a revelation of modified dread irradiated by hope and promise. Amen. I believe this is our charge. This is our moment. This is exactly what is demanded of us right now. We are not denying the trauma of the past. We are not denying the realities of the vulnerability of our people, of, of the Israeli people. We are not asked to deny that. I think it's exactly this, that it is a revelation, this night, this vision of God at night that Yaakov has. It's a revelation of modified dread irradiated by hope and promise. This is the only way that we will take our our ability to live in the world as synthesis, as a way of contributing to the world through our own confrontation with both the mystery and the expansion of chesed and ahava which has characterized the Jewish people as well as an honest assessment and an honest facing of the trauma of the past and what that means um, bringing those together in order to go forward, um, both in Israel and with what we face in America with, you know, with, with all that's happening. And so, um, I, I bring that to you because it really, really resonated for me that it is, and no one is saying it's easy and no one's saying it's clear how to do this. And no one's saying we should know how to do this, but our tradition has never stopped because it was hard. Our tradition has never said because we don't know how we don't try. Our tradition has said, figure it out. You have lots of wisdom to pull from. And there are lots of smart people living today. Use it. Dig in. You don't get to not start the work just because you know you can't finish it. You don't get to not start. And so that is, that is what I offer us all is, is the, may we have the energy, the courage, the strength, the determination to, to be the synthesis that, that our people and the world needs right now. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.